Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. With all the media coverage surrounding hurricanes Harvey and Irma, there's been very little discussion about how we humans have contributed to this recipe for destruction. So we're, you know, we're dialing up the extra heat in the atmosphere. It's really stovetop science working on the, the planetary scale. Congress may still be divided on the causes of climate change, but as one U.S. senator cautions, Americans no longer have the luxury of ignoring its effects. There is a deep immorality in ignoring what is real uh, and what is happening, and the fact that it's getting worse and causing real human suffering and also having a terrible impact fiscally on the federal treasury, you know, is going to require us to act. A hurricane's human fingerprints, up next on Climate One. From Katrina and Sandy to Harvey, Irma, and Jose, how is climate change fueling these destructive hurricanes? This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Today, we're delving into the human causes of extreme weather. Recently, as Hurricane Irma was barreling down on Florida, Greg Dalton spoke with U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii about the politics and costs of the megastorms pummeling our country. So Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane uh, Jose behind that, how have these big storms in strong succession change the politics of climate change in the country? I think there is an instinct that uh, this is not just an unusually bad year for weather, but that this is a pattern and that it is caused by pollution. So whether you want to call it climate change or increasing frequency of severe weather, there's a recognition that the weather is getting worse and it's because of what we're doing uh, to the atmosphere. I think in the Senate, you probably got a dozen Republicans who would like to do the right thing on climate. Uh, they understand that this is an urgent matter. A lot of them are on the Armed Services Committee, and they get uh, both classified and unclassified information with respect to what climate is doing to our defense posture around the planet. And, uh, you know, the Department of Defense doesn't have the luxury of ignoring reality. So when they do their QDR, their quadrennial defense review, when they do their defense strategic documents, they have to acknowledge that the weather is changing, that uh, coastal zones are changing. There is uh, a deep immorality uh, in ignoring what is real uh, and what is happening and the fact that it's getting worse and causing real human suffering and also having a terrible impact fiscally uh, on the federal treasury, you know, is going to require us to act. You mentioned the federal treasury, the National Flood Insurance Program 2012, right about the time you came in uh, to the Congress, uh, reformed that national flood program. Homeowners, property owners squealed because prices started to go up to reflect the risk of where they're living, their property is. Congress walked it back. Now that program's about $25 billion in the red, still paying off Katrina, Sandy. Now we have Harvey and Irma on top of that. How's that going to be solved? Well, it's it's quite ridiculous. We're going to do a short-term extension, and we need to. And we also have to recognize that people who live in low-lying uh, areas and flood-prone areas— you know, it's not necessarily their fault. They uh, they bought a home. They live in a community 
uh, and it's a real challenge. And not everybody who lives, say, in a coastal zone is a rich person. You know, you've got people in Houston, Louisiana, uh, Florida, uh, who are middle income or low income, and it's their home. So, you know, you don't, you can't create a situation where, you know, a bunch of technicians come in and say, you know, we've assessed the risk of of rebuilding. And it's going to be twenty thousand a year for your insurance. So we understand there's a human aspect of this, um, but on the other hand, um, it is not free to continue to rebuild in these areas that are increasingly uh, 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 prone uh, to damage. So I have an amendment uh, with uh, Senator Tim Scott, who's a conservative uh, Republican from South Carolina, requiring that uh, municipalities uh, report back to FEMA on what they're doing to harden infrastructure and to have some planning around flooding uh, and hurricanes and the like. So we're trying to make incremental progress in this uh, flood conversation. But I have to tell you, um, you know, we are whistling past the graveyard fiscally. I mean, we all know what's happening ecologically, um, but this is now into the hundreds of billions of dollars every year. It is not cheap to ignore climate change. We're going to be hit with probably north of $100 billion of additional costs directly to the Treasury uh, as a result of climate change. So it is the most expensive thing that we could do is nothing. And it seems like, you know, Florida, uh, still a lot of building, uh, waterfront, uh, a lot of property value in harm's way. Houston built a lot of sprawl, paved over a lot of land that didn't absorb so that the states and cities are building things. Then if something really bad happens and Uncle Sam comes in and writes him a check. It's really a hard one. You know, I was I was uh, I saw the the uh, Miami uh, mayor and and uh, and he was on television and he's been very good uh, uh, about talking about the reality of climate change. But he's the Miami mayor and he's not going he's not about to say that this whole city was built in the wrong place. But if you want to be uh, sort of technically correct about it, this is a really tough place to to sustain a city because of the limestone, because of the exposure to hurricanes. Um, but that's part of their culture is to be right on the water and to be resilient and to be and to rebuild. So I think, you know, these are not easy issues uh, uh, at the moral level or the political level, because, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is build a broad bipartisan coalition to get to that magic number of 60 votes in the United States Senate. And if I take a hard line and say, you know, cities of several million people have to move and may not rebuild, um, that's not tenable. So, you know, uh, it was interesting to see the congresswoman from Miami. Uh, the I think she, I think he's a Republican mayor from Miami. Uh, you know, the more people experience this uh, for their own communities, the less uh, attached to the Koch brothers orthodoxy that they are. You did a bill with Senator uh, Thune from uh, South Republican of South Dakota that advanced uh, seasonal forecasts, uh, gave some money to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to kind of forecast these kinds of things. Also opened it up to some private sector participation, something Republicans wanted. So you worked with uh, Lamar Smith from Texas, Republican, Frank Lucas, Republican from Oklahoma, a lot of Republican support for that. So does that mean that you can work with Republicans and just not talk about climate on things that are really climate related and call it weather. Okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think there's a willingness to talk about um, hardening infrastructure. There's a willingness to talk about civil defense preparedness. Uh, In this context, what was happening is uh, people in the Midwest and Plains states, farmers wanted uh, longer term data from the National Weather Service so they could do their planting and and make their plans for, for big farm operations. And the National Weather Service actually had a statutory maximum number of months that they could provide projections for. Anything beyond that was not weather, it was climate. And, um, and so what they wanted was that what the farmers were demanding, mostly Republican farmers were, were demanding, was really climate data. But the politics are difficult of using the word climate. So we called it long-term seasonal weather forecasting. And uh, you know, I joke. You, I don't care what you call it. We can we can banish the word climate, the, the phrase climate change from the face of the earth. I would be happy. We can call this severe weather caused by pollution. Uh, but we passed a good bill. The president of the United States, uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, enacted it into law. Uh, and um, you know, we've been able to do some good bipartisan things. Uh, ARPA E, which is a very exciting program in in the Department of Energy. 
uh, got a big increase in funding uh, in the last appropriations bill, thanks to a partnership that I developed with uh, Lisa Murkowski and uh, Lamar Alexander. It's a popular program. It really works. Uh, the Department of Defense is doing the right thing. So we're making good incremental progress and trying to find those uh, places where Republicans can do the right thing and not find themselves, you know, uh, primaried as a result of acknowledging reality. Um, where we are not is we are not in a position to um, enact a carbon fee, which is what we have to eventually do. Brian Schatz is a Democratic U.S. senator from Hawaii. We turn now to the science of severe weather. In 1995, the IPCC, the group of international scientists, concluded for the first time that human activity was having a measurable impact on the global climate. I asked the lead author of that landmark report, Ben Santer, if Hurricane Harvey and Irma have human fingerprints. If you look at the large-scale conditions that influence hurricanes like Harvey and Irma, ocean surface temperatures, the moisture content of the atmosphere, then the answer is clearly yes. Human activities are warming the ocean surface in key hurricane breeding grounds and are moistening the atmosphere. And both of those things would tend to make hurricanes more intense and more impactful. So we're loading the dice. We're changing these large-scale conditions through our actions, through the burning of fossil fuels, in a way that makes it riskier, that, that increases the likelihood of getting events like Harvey and Irma. That's bad news for the future. And it's much more difficult, uh, however, to look at the question of human contribution to a specific event like uh, Harvey and Irma. That's tough science. That science is going to be done uh, over the next couple of months uh, or so, but it will take uh, it will take a while to be able to assess the human contribution to an individual event. So we're creating the conditions, uh, increasing the probability. When you say that ocean surface temperature is, is warmer, is that because of some computer model or is that because of direct observation? How do we know that? Well, uh, two things really. First, by burning fossil fuels and increasing greenhouse gases, we are warming the oceans and we're melting land glaciers. We're also starting to melt big ice sheets like the Greenland ice sheet, and that's raising sea level. Again, through a variety of different measurements, tide gauges, um, stuff called satellite radar uh, altimetry, where we can very accurately measure the global height of the ocean surface. From all that stuff, we know that global sea level has increased by about eight inches uh, over the period we've been monitoring sea level. That might not sound like much, but it, it's increasing the baseline. So when you do get uh, a landfalling hurricane or one that's close to land and you have storm surges, they go further inland. They're more impactful. That's bad news. The other thing is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a link between the warming of the oceans and the intensity of hurricanes. So with warmer oceans, we tend to get more intense wind speeds, uh, that means you can get larger storm surges, uh, and that too can push water further inland and cause more damage. So the combination of those things, um, human-caused warming of the oceans, rising sea level, and more intense hurricanes, uh, means that the effect of storm surges is more serious, more severe, more impactful for humans. The Trump administration has proposed cutting uh, funding for the national labs where, where you work, as well as for NOAA, for observation. I think it's about 16 percent. So how are those budget cuts going to affect our ability to predict and track the kinds of hurricanes we've seen recently? There could be serious impacts on our ability to measure, monitor, track hurricanes, keep people safe if we cut the funding for this critically important research, you don't want to be blind. You don't want to turn off your eyes in space during Irma or during Harvey or during the inevitable future Irmas and Harveys that the science tells us we will see. 
You don't want to do that. That would be an act of incredible stupidity. In the end, the government is charged with keeping the people of the United States safe from harm. They will be failing in that most basic responsibility if they turn off satellites and make it difficult to measure and monitor uh, what's happening during the actual event itself. And they will be equally remiss if they turn off satellites that enable us to understand long-term change and the contribution of human activities to changing ocean surface temperatures, to changing moisture in the atmosphere, uh, to changing winds and atmospheric circulation. All of those things matter for hurricanes. We got to continue measuring and monitoring those things. Satellites are an essential component of that. So too are the scientists who study the satellite data. Ben Santer is a researcher with the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and a winner of the MacArthur Genius Award. This is Climate One. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. For 10 years on this show, I've been interviewing scientists and other experts about the impacts of taking energy from the ground and burning it which sends carbon pollution into the sky. With the country reeling from two massive back-to-back hurricanes, we went to our library and pulled conversations with people who can put this together in a broader context and explain what's going on. In October 2012, John Englander published a book titled High Tide on Main Street, Rising Sea Level and the Coming Coastal Crisis. One week later, Hurricane Sandy devastated New York and New Jersey, driven in part by warmer and higher seas. A few years ago, I interviewed John Englander and Angela Fritz, who was then working at the Weather Channel. She's now the deputy weather editor at the Washington Post. I started by asking how they got into the business of weird weather. Here's Angela Fritz. Well, I originally uh, started off knowing that I wanted to be a meteorologist from a young age. Um, When I was very young, uh, my mother said that I used to stand up next to the plate glass window in my living room and stare at the thunderstorms while the rest of my family was in the basement. Um, So I I just kind of knew. I knew that's what I was going to do. And so I went to college at Valparaiso University, um, studied meteorology, um, weather, went storm chasing every summer. It was great. Um, And I decided that I needed to kind of broaden that atmospheric science study into climate and um, climate science and, and then the relationship between weather and climate. And so that's really how it all started. Great. And we'll get into that a little more, but the distinction between weather and climate. John Englander, you were in Greenland in 2007. Uh, tell us about how, what happened there and how that led to the book on sea level rise. Sure. I had been uh, involved with ocean issues for three or four decades. And in 2004, I was running a group called International Seakeepers. It was a group of yacht owners who had a system that allowed their yachts to collect data and transmit it by satellite. And uh, they were kind of all over the place politically, if you will, uh, left, right, conservative, liberal. But while I was helping them perfect that system and the data, I was concerned about climate change. And uh, as I was running this group Seakeepers, I took some of the billionaires to Greenland to look at ground zero for sea level rise. And there was still skepticism. And I was just, how do you communicate this? And standing there the first night, I realized looking at the ocean, it's sea level because as sea level rises, as the ice melts, the shoreline moves inland, it destroys real estate values. And the coastline moving inland for the first time in 6,000 years is a story that gets everybody's attention, no matter what their economic or social or even location. Uh, let's talk about the distinction. Sea level has been rising and falling uh, over many, you know, many millennia, many yep. uh, throughout the history of the Earth. So how do we distinguish between what's happening now and the natural cycles that happens every 100,000 years or so, the seas go through a cycle? So how do we know it's not natural cycles now? Absolutely. Well, humans have had an impact on things for either centuries or at the best thousands of years going back to our earliest agriculture. That's kind of the belief that maybe over 8,000 years we've had some effect. Okay. Regardless of how long you think, the, how old the earth is or whatever. But that's about how far back it goes. Sea level history, as you alluded to, deals with the ice ages. And what I had studied in college, which gave me the great foundation for this, 
I'd been fascinated to see that as the ice ages, which are a roughly 100,000 year cycle, and for five million years, we've had an ice age roughly every 100,000 years. And as two miles of ice melts, the ocean rises three or 400 feet. I thought that was amazing. And we were ignorant of it because for 6,000 years, it had been kind of at the present level, which is more or less our civilization and our perspective. And when we go to the beach, we think that's where it's always been and always will be. Back then, there was no concept that the ice sheets would melt. And now you've all seen photographs of the melting Arctic ice cap. And we know that the Arctic will be ice-free in September, maybe in three years, but certainly within 20 years. The fact that it's been frozen for three million years makes the case more clearly than anything else that we're in different times. And it's also, isn't it, the, the rate of increase now, that this happens over thousands of years, whereas now it's happening over decades and, and centuries. Isn't that a key factor? As well as that there's already 50 feet or so, you write, baked in uh, to what's already happened that we haven't seen. Sea level rises up, up and down three or 400 feet. We're at the normal top spot, the normal warm point. And after 20,000 years of warming, and we should be entering the 80,000 year phase toward cooling and growing ice sheets and dropping sea level. The fact that it's now doing the opposite and the Arctic is melting and the ocean is eight tenths of a, de a degree and a half Fahrenheit warmer pro proves that we've broken the cycle and that warming correlates with the amount of CO2 level which is 40% higher than it's been in the last 10 million years. And so that's the key. When you look at it in a historic context of ice ages, and that we should be entering the 80,000 year cooling, but we're warming. That's the difference between the natural cycle and what is different now for the first time in 10 million years. Angela Friss, does that mean we've hit a tipping point? Yeah, I think that we've probably, I mean, it depends on what you consider a tipping point, mm -hmm. but I think that we have reached the new normal. I think that's a phrase that a lot of people like to uh, use as an analogy with the tipping point. And I do think that we're in kind of this new paradigm of um, climate, climate, the Anthropocene maybe, is something that we can, we can call this. And so what does that mean? What does the Anthropocene the, mean? The era influenced by humans, by anthropogenic influences. Um, and, and I do think that we're seeing this, um, like John points out, in sea, sea level rise. You know, that's, that's physical evidence that this is happening. Um, and it's not just a modeling study, and it's not just um, something that's kind of remote. I want to ask Angela Fritz uh, a, a secret question just between us. Uh, where should we buy land? <laughs> not on the ocean front. Okay, all right. Well, that, Write that down. Uh, Costa Rica? Yeah, Costa Rica maybe. Um, so yeah, so there are, there are some places um, that might be better off in climate change than others. Um, tropics? The tropics might be good. You know, like I said, the tropics aren't going to warm as much as say the Arctic or anywhere else in the world. And so they're not going to see as, as much impact maybe, although, you know, they'll probably see more rain um, with more water vapor in the air. Um, so if you can deal with the rain, um, maybe you'll want to move to Costa Rica or Nicaragua and then cross your fingers for no hurricanes. So put some of the pieces together, how these, all these things are interacting. Right, so specifically, you know, tropical storms and climate change is still, it's one of the big remaining question marks, I think, in climate science. Um, and there's been a lot of studies, uh, the first, one of the first big ones was in 2005, right before um, uh, Katrina hit. Um, it was another fortuitous event where they published the paper and then Katrina oh. and it, it was all at the same time and what are you gonna do? Um, that said that, you know, statistically it looks like uh, the number of category three, four and five hurricanes could be increasing, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a lot of talk about data quality and the fact that it seems like hurricanes have been tracked for a very long time, but in reality, it hasn't been that long, and, and what can we really say about this data? Yeah. Um, and physically, physically, it's one of those things where we still don't quite understand um, how climate change is going to impact tropical cyclones because there, it's, a, it's a balance of effects. So on the one hand, um, we suspect that um, wind shear over the North Atlantic, which is something that inhibits tropical cyclone formation is going to increase. So we would say, oh good, we're not going to get as many tropical cyclones. That's bad for the drought, but it's good for 
coastal communities and, and the damage that it does. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, sea surface temperature is obviously rising, um, and we're obviously evaporating more water into the atmosphere. So you would ex then you would say, oh, geez, that's going to make the storms stronger um, after they do develop. And so there's this, there's this yin and yang, and there's a balance, um, and we haven't quite figured out which side of the fence we're going to land on with that. Um, you know, that being said, once something forms, it's very difficult to say, you know, overall, where are they going to go? Are they going to go into the Gulf of Mexico and relieve that summer drought more often? Or are they going to go out to sea more often? Um, and that's something that we, we're, st it's still, we're still out to lunch on. You know, we don't quite know. Um, and I, th I think the only thing that's going to provide us with more insight is more data. Um, and that just means more time. But, but we know that, that things are changing and that there is a climate impact, a, a thumbprint on most weather events. And that's kind of what I think we need to focus on. Angela knows too much. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that to say that climate science is fundamental and basic is, is oversimplifying. It's like going to your cardiologist and saying, well, we, we understand heart, you know, heart <laughs> issues. And he quotes you in you know, all these technical terms. Um, it's true that greenhouse gas were identified in 1826 and in 1896 that uh, a, a speed, um, you know, described what would happen as CO2 levels increased and warming would happen, and he was remarkably accurate. That's true in the, in the, the annals of, of climate science, but the public doesn't understand that, and there's still doubt for different reasons. Some of it's emotional, they don't want to leave, they may dislike Al Gore, whatever, whatever, their, whatever their reasons are that they just don't want to believe it, okay? And, uh, and the the fact that CO2, a colorless gas, can trap heat with an amazing power is hard to believe. It, it defies common belief, mm -hmm. even though it was proven in 1826 by Joseph Fourier. Didn't even require modern technology. It's a simple fact of physics. And methane is 256 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas. The reason the Earth is a degree and a half Fahrenheit warmer than a century ago is because CO2 has gone from 280 to 395, a 40% increase. Those numbers add up in physics, atmospheric chemistry, however you want to look at it, and the results are there. And it correlates with the amount of CO2 we put in the air. The dots do connect if you want to look at the information. At the last warm spot, ice ages are roughly 100,000 years apart. At the last comparable warm spot, sea level got 25 feet higher than today. We're going to go way past that because the ocean's a lot warmer than it got back then. There's a lag time from CO2 to temperature to melting the ice to rise in the ocean. It's that lag time that is what we can't comprehend because we think in terms of where are we going to have lunch tomorrow or a year's a long time. It takes hundreds of years to melt the ice sheets. Some say thousands of years. That defies our human experience, which goes back 10,000 or a few hundred thousand years at most. That's why we, we are in ignorance. Just in your time scales, Greg, you, you mentioned, uh, the, or Angela mentioned the, the Anthropocene, uh, this period of time that's now going to be probably renamed because it's a human-affected climate. The Holocene, not to get technical here, was 11,000 years long. That's the stable period that we all remember one way or another. But Earth's climate has been you know, the Jurassic, the dinosaur era. There was no ice on Earth. Sea level was 200 feet higher. There were alligators in Alaska. Earth has had vastly changing climate. But we got into the stability of the last 10,000 years, the Holocene. That stability still had the ice ages moving up and down 9 degrees Fahrenheit, global average. But now we've departed. So we need to rename it because when you look at the continuum of 4.5 billion years, we've entered a new era. We've been talking about sea levels through the ages with John Englander author of High Tide on Main Street, and Angela Fritz, a former writer at the Weather Channel, now with the Washington Post. Catherine Sullivan was one of the first six women selected to join the NASA Astronaut Corps in 1978 and holds the distinction of being the first American woman to walk in space. She ran the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in President Obama's second term. In 2015, I sat down with her and Hunter Cutting, a consultant who wrote a paper titled Connecting the Dots, a communications guide to climate change and extreme weather. Catherine Sullivan gets us going with the basic science. Well, the big picture is that the, the chemistry of the atmosphere is clearly changing. Uh, 
carbon dioxide is rising. That's been an actual physical measurement. Grab some air from the top of a big volcano, Mauna Loa, take it to the lab, measure it. That goes back decades. So that's just an actual measured curve uh, of carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. The physics of what that will result in are very clear, and they've been known for 60 or 70 years. Uh, carbon dioxide is one of the heat-trapping gases that accentuates, heightens the greenhouse effect that makes our planet livable. So the atmosphere is getting warmer. More heat is stored in the atmosphere. And those physics are pretty clear, too. When you put more heat in the atmosphere, you can bring in more moisture. You have more power, more latent power in the atmosphere. And the bell curve of what we would consider normal weather for any given place shifts to a warmer, the average shifts to a warmer point. That means a couple of things. You see more extreme weather, the category of weather that's in what you consider extreme is, is more abundant, they're more frequent events, and they're more intense events. So the physics that you would expect would predict you'll see higher hot temperatures, you'll see more persistent hot periods, You'll see fewer extreme cold temperatures, and indeed the statistics show that. Uh, you'll see warmer nighttime lows, and indeed the statistics show that, uh, and, and onward and onward. So in, a part, in part what you're seeing is the patterns we've been used to don't match up anymore with what's the new normal in this hotter than before atmosphere. And it you know, wreaks a little bit of havoc with our our nice easy expectations of, you know, October is, March is always like so-and-so in San Francisco. In the cooler atmosphere of before, but it's going to be different with more heat trapping capability in the atmosphere. And you're one of the few Americans who've actually been up in that atmosphere. So how does having walked in space affect your influence, <laughs> the way you look at this? Because you're one of the few people who've actually, with that famous, uh, was it Earthrise photograph uh, that really changed the way humans looked at Earth, came from astronauts in the late 60s? In the 60s and 70s, yeah. Mm. Um, I'm just a lowly space shuttle astronaut, so unfortunately we didn't get as far away as the guys that got the great Earthrise <laughs> pictures. The okay. shuttle uh, orbits the Earth in the two or 300 mile uh, altitude range. It's above most of what we consider to be the atmosphere. Um, I, two things I would say. One is, you know, down here walking around on the dirt, we tend to see the atmosphere and the, the sky is immense. The atmosphere seems huge. Think of the metaphors in literature, the ocean of air above us. When you get even a couple hundred miles away and look back at the planet, you get a really different sense of proportion. And the atmosphere that everything alive on Earth depends upon looks a lot more like the fuzz on a tennis ball than it does look like than some thick rind on a grapefruit or something. It's remarkably thin. And you can see very elegant stratification within it as you watch the sun rise or set behind it. So you know, I got a very different sense of uh, the, the thin little membrane of air. It's a little fluid membrane that envelops this ball of dirt and makes it habitable. It's very elegantly and finely structured. It's got a sort of a precision to how it all works. And clearly that, the chemistry of that at least, is being altered. I would make just one final point because it's a very profound one and I think it's worth remembering. We are the first generation of human beings ever in the history of humankind that has the ability to comprehend and measure our planet the way we currently do with satellites and other instrumentation. We can essentially take a snapshot of global conditions, oceanic conditions, atmospheric conditions, and this is what's made it possible for, have the, for us to have the kind of forecasting we have in weather forecasting and in, in longer range outlooks. Human beings have always craved foresight about what's coming ahead for them and they should be prepared of, and we're the first generation that has any capacity to develop that kind of foresight in substantive, scientifically sound, actionable ways. And we're babies in terms of learning how to factor that into our decision making. Aren't we also the first generation to change the biochemistry of the planet on a global scale? And so when someone says, how do I know that this huge uh, snowstorm in Boston is related to climate change? Or is the California drought related to climate change? What do you say, Kathy Sullivan? Well, it's an exceedingly complex system. Uh, it's a little bit, my best metaphor for this is it's a little bit like dissecting what happened in an, in an airline accident. And so there's always a chain of events that led up to the, atmosphere, to the, the accident. 
and the temptation to want to say, well, if that one had been a little different or that one, it, you know, the, the outcome is a consequence of a whole chain of events. That's just being metaphorical, but to take any given storm or any single event and say that is specifically because of just the chemistry, it's because of the dynamics of the atmosphere. The odds, the odds of severe events, the odds of intense events, the odds of higher temperatures, uh, warmer overnight lows, those odds unequivocally all go up globally as you put uh, heat into the, extra heat into the atmosphere. And how that will translate out by latitude and by region, by proximity to the ocean, by microclimate and topography, that's going to continue to be very complex. And Hunter Cutting, is weird weather, is that a teachable moment to people when something happens unusual, their garden blossoms differently, or there's some unusual weather? Does that cause people to say, hmm, global warming is happening? Or is it just like, yeah, not, not so much? Well, it, it seems to be. Um, science is not something that gauges a lot of people a lot of the time. Surprise, surprise. Uh, but weather is something that everybody contends with. And so when you try to have a conversation with people about global warming in the abstract, unless they're a political advocate of some stripe, you're just not gonna get a lot of traction with everyday people. But if you're having a conversation with people when they're contending with a drought or contending with a heat wave, it, it's, it, a natural question comes up, like why is this? You know, Why is this the third once in 500 year storm we're having on, on the east coast of the United States within 10 years? Um, so they, they do seem to be teachable moments, and, and some of the polling data out there suggests that as well. That's Hunter Cutting, Director of Strategic Communications at Climate Nexus. We'll be back with more of our conversation on hurricanes, wild weather, and the climate connection right after this. This is Climate One. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. On today's program, we're examining the human fingerprints of hurricanes Katrina, Harvey, Irma, and others. In 2015, Greg Dalton spoke with Catherine Sullivan, administrator of NOAA under President Obama, and climate communications specialist Hunter Cutting. Let's continue with their conversation. So, Kathy Sullivan, explain for us, hot air holds more moisture. So what does that mean for more air, more moisture circulating, and how does that manifest in storms? So the energy that drives weather in our planet is the heat coming in from the sun, uh, the moisture content uh, of the atmosphere, and obviously the rotation of the Earth and all of the swirling that that introduces. So we're, you know, we're dialing up the extra heat in the atmosphere. This is, this is kitchen table science, right? This is stovetop science. Uh, when you heat up the water, relative humidity in a hot atmosphere can be much higher than in a cooler, drier atmosphere. So it's kitchen, it's really stovetop science working on the, the planetary scale. The energy content of the atmosphere, what makes our weather systems dynamic, is the heat and the moisture content of the atmosphere. Dial one up, you're gonna have a more energetic atmosphere. So is there now a business incentive for promoting severe weather? Are people making money off of this? Is there like ratings involved and sort of, so I heard the term the other day, weather porn, which is like the idea of like what happens after a disaster, hurricane, et cetera. Is there now sort of a business incentive to, to uh, exaggerate perhaps severe weather? Yeah, you know, we do, we do the total business of weather communication in a pretty unique way in the United States. NOAA's responsibility is to gather the foundational observations. No one can make a forecast without them. We actually gather them from countries all around the planet because you cannot make a forecast for anywhere in the United States that's more than two days long unless you've got measurements from the entire globe. So there's a tremendous international exchange of that foundational information. So global forecasts are possible. And we put a certain set of basic forecast products out, and then we stop. We work directly with uh, public sector managers, folks like governor's offices, state emergency managers. So the short answer with that backdrop is, yes, you've got commercial companies uh, vying for market share, you have broadcasters vying for viewer loyalty, and, and they know from their polling and audience studies that the weather broadcaster is, is one of the loyalty points. So yeah, they want to 
draw your attention. They wanna make sure you look back again frequently. Uh, check, keep it being in the news, keep it coming back. The number of billion dollar severe weather events has increased. Critics might say, well, that's obvious because just like uh, box office records, the, the you know, ticket prices at the cinema go up over time, so there's more property, it's worth more. But how do we know that, that there's more uh, economic impact from s severe weather? Well, it's true. I mean, there are the value at risk, if you will, is higher. As the population grows, as our cities grow, as we build and develop more, more areas, uh, any given natural event has, has more in harm's way. So you do mm -hmm. expect the numerical value to go up over time, just even because of those factors. To tease out underneath that whether the statistics of the events, the frequency of certain events is actually going up or the intensity of certain events going up is a more subtle and challenging task. Uh, we maintain at NOAA an analysis called the Climate Extremes Index that aims to do that, and it takes a basket of indicators that get at percentage occurrences of precipitation in certain patterns, temperatures in certain patterns, and try to look across all of those uh, to, to try to get underneath the symptomology of the insurance dollars and really understand if we're seeing what degree of frequency of change we're seeing in the natural events. Again, everything about the physics of a warming atmosphere tell us we should be expecting to see more events and more extreme events. And you know, uh, I would like to talk about migration. Uh, Kathy Sullivan, do we know how weather patterns may affect migration? I interviewed someone who used to work at the Center for Disease Control. He predicted that people would move from Arizona back to Michigan, that this, this migration we've seen to the Sun Belt in recent decades would be reversed as Americans move towards cooler temperatures. Is that something that's on your radar at NOAA? Uh, you know, a number of migration patterns are on, uh, let me say, the national radar screen in this regard. Um, disease patterns are migrating. The hay fever, hay fever seasons have already expanded by up to 26 days through the central and northern tier and up into the Canadian provinces. Anyone who's a gardener has watched the plant hardiness zones march north year over year as the annual planting guides came out. Uh, wildlife biologists can walk through a a list of species that are arriving sooner, leaving later, shortened seasons. That's being observed all around the globe. Uh, human migrations are also being observed and are very much a concern of national security officials uh, in many, many, many countries. There's a study just out uh, reported in Eclipse today um, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that makes a very compelling case. It's probably the clearest case. Uh, and this goes back to my airline accident analogy mm -hmm. of earlier, that the unrest we're seeing in Syria and the Middle East is at least in part, I emphasize at least in part, fostered or, or catalyzed by climate change. You have severe drought for a number of years in a rural area with increasing food security, a flood of people to cities, government cities not able to handle them and provide the basic security and, and well-being, weak government responses, erosion of confidence, it, it's a slow unraveling, and climate drought is not the only factor, but it you know, contributes to that. And in the last five years, there have been at least a half a dozen different studies out of Europe, after the, out of the Defense Science Board, out of the Marine Military Advisory Board, out of the ASEAN nations, uh, raising the point that a next consequence that the countries of the world need to take care of is the destabilizing of populations and the, the movement of people, both climate refugees and large populations, but also triggering the kind of humanitarian responses that we maybe see after a big typhoon, but having them sort of chronically happening. Uh, let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Um, I have a question about adaptation versus mitigation. I know we have to adapt, but is it somewhat misleading to imagine that we can and how far ahead are we projecting in, in this conversation? And I'm curious what projections NOAA is using. And is there, how much climate change is already baked into the equation? Kathy Sullivan. Uh, thanks. Um, so the, you know, the conventional usage in Washington is that mitigation speaks to mitigating or reducing CO2 emissions and slow, slow the warming and aim would be avert, uh, avert certain temperature extremes. Adaptation, yes, I mean, there's already enough 
shifting of the, the patterns and the norms that we're accustomed to in the climate sense that we have to look at adapting business practices, land use practices to a different set of normals. I wouldn't relegate it to duck and cover status because I think adapting in the sense of learning how to make our designs, our societies more resilient, better able to weather, better able to withstand disruptions, whatever may induce them, uh, has good prospect of mitigating the consequence of whatever we might face. So I, I think it is valid to work on adaptation. At NOAA, we, uh, we oversee the synthesis of, of research that becomes the every four years national climate assessment, the last one just came out last year. And we rely on those scenarios. Uh, and globally, we check those against the international scenarios that are done by the, the IPCC panel. That is, that is the best synthesis of the scientific data and the models. It's, it's a critical synthesis. It's not a roll up your friend's science kind of thing. It really is a very demanding, challenging process to confirm and vet the quality and the caliber of the science underlying these projections. They're the best we've got. And Hunter Cutting, you think that Californians and Americans and humans are very adaptive and we, we're good at this. We are good at change. It's, it's the one of the signature characteristics of our species. It's, it's definitely part of the American fabric and the culture is that we, we are very adaptable. Um, American ingenuity is not just a buzzword. It's, 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 you can watch the last 200 years of our history and see it in action. So um, I think you know it's a bit of a balancing act, right? We're gonna have to mitigate, we're gonna have to reduce emissions to avoid the catastrophic changes. And, and they're catastrophic. The, the temperature increase that we will see may not sound like much, like eight degrees may not sound like much, but that's about the amount of temperature change that we saw that ended the last ice age and would have crocodiles live in the Arctic. I mean, so we, we really don't want to go there. Uh, you know, two degrees of temperature change, people have talked about, a lot of people have put that out there as um, safe, although you could talk to the residents of uh, Sandy Hook and ask them if they felt it was already been safe, but we that we can do we can adapt to that much um, It's doable. So I think we have to do both you have to yep. Mitigate to avoid the catastrophic and adapt to what we can avoid it adaptation is just gonna be part of what we do now going forward in the future Hunter Cutting is director of strategic communication with climate nexus a communications firm Catherine Sullivan is former administrator of NOAA and a space shuttle astronaut while much of the country's been hit with storms that bring too much water, we turn now to the flip side of the climate coin, not enough water. Scientists say the altered climate will bring increasing extremes. The wets get wetter and the dries get drier. One key to smoothing out those wild swings is capturing and storing water from massive storms. For farmer Don Cameron, that means intentionally flooding his fields to recharge aquifers. When he did that, his farmer neighbors thought he was, well, nuts. Right. We, we knew long term that we were our groundwater levels were declining. And in 2011, uh, we, we, we actually took flood water and conveyed it onto our growing crops. We had uh, water one to two feet deep in our vineyards and we kept it on for four, four and a half months. Uh, this year, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're intentionally flooding wine grapes, almonds, pistachios, alfalfa hay. Uh, we have one, one vineyard that we've already put over 10 feet of water uh, going to the groundwater. So we're looking at diverting flood water and trying to improve our, our groundwater. How does the wine taste after you flood the vineyard with two <laughs> feet of wine? Well, I hate two feet of water. You know, the, the, this, where we farm isn't Napa Valley. So it's not the $150 bottles of wine that we're producing. But uh, by the time we get into the summer, the, the vines actually use the water up. Uh, during that period, and, and we have to go back to drip irrigation to, uh, to get to harvest. And, but you're doing this, you, you know, often groundwater is talked about as, as a bank account, right? That you, you draw from it in, in dry years, you put it back in wet years. So you're putting water back in your own bank account. Are you worried that your neighbor next door is going to have a straw and suck water out of your account? No, I think we're, we're looking long term that the region needs to build the groundwater back up. Um, in California, we have regulations that will be addressing that uh, in the near future. But we started way before the regulations uh, came into place. We felt it was the right thing to do. And, and we feel that long term, this is going to be good for our community and for all of our neighbors. We want to bring them into the program. We have a project that's going to hopefully get up to 16,000 acres. And, and actually put in 30,000 acre feet a month into the groundwater. 
Don Cameron, a farmer who grows 25 crops on 6,000 acres of farmland in California. Buzz Thompson is a professor at Stanford Law School and an expert on water. Buzz Thompson, there's been a lot of talk about extreme uh, extraction of groundwater in Central California, uh, Central Valley. Uh, this, the land is actually subsiding, sinking in some areas, uh, and that's been an area of, of concern. So can this perhaps redress some of the, the sinking ground in the farmland of California? It certainly can, and it would be great to see even more of this type of practice uh, taking place. And one of the things that we need to do is to make sure there's an incentive in place, and in particular to make sure that if somebody is willing to use their land to store water, uh, that that is then their water uh, so that they, take, uh, they can take advantage of that. Um, one of the problems that we've had, though, is that as you actually extract groundwater, in some of the groundwater aquifers, you get a compaction of the aquifer itself so that you have less storage capacity in the future. So it would be great to see people at this point in time making the step of actually trying to replenish the aquifer so that we don't lose that capacity in the future. And how much of this is relevant to other parts of, of the United States, the Great Plains? Uh, climate change is going to affect the delivery of water in lots of places. So the first thing to recognize is that the overdrafting of our groundwater aquifers, where we extract more water than is naturally being replenished, is not a problem that's limited to California. This is a problem that you see throughout the western United States, and in fact you see it globally. The solution of actually going in and taking surface water when it's available and storing it in that groundwater aquifer is one that is available any place that you have surface water available. In California, thankfully, because we plumbed our state really well and we can move the water around fairly easily, it gives us a great opportunity to engage in groundwater storage and recovery. Other portions of the United States, however, including some areas over the Ogallala Aquifer, there's less surface water available even during wet periods. So there, they're actually much more out of luck than California. That was Buzz Thompson, professor of natural resources at Stanford Law School. We also heard from Don Cameron, who manages Terra Nova Ranch in Central California. You've been listening to a special Climate One program on weather, water, and the human fingerprints of climate change, hosted by Greg Dalton. Greg's other guests on the program were U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii and climate experts Ben Santer, Angela Fritz, John Englander, Catherine Sullivan, and Hunter Cutting. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. You can discover additional podcasts, videos, speaker information, and more at climateone.org. Join us next time for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.